sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor at law at Chase Law School. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Trey. Uh, It's good to be back. I know you have actually had a really exciting summer. I'll be honest, I'm a little bit jealous of you (laughs) gallivanting around the world, basically. And uh, have you had, had a good time? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, don't be too jealous because I'm I'm a lot older than you, and I never did it until I'm as old as I am now. But I so you got plenty of time. But I um I I was uh, spending most of the summer in Germany and Italy, and a little bit of it in uh, Colorado. So I, I have been traveling around a lot. So it's been fun. Well, I, I myself I do love to travel, and I'm I'm hoping to actually be not too far from that one day teaching for Oklahoma Christians. So we'll see. Uh, mm-hmm. But Ken, I think what we'd like to kind of start off with this week, especially since you're back here with the politics guys, is the climate change town hall this week. Now on Wednesday the 10th, there was a and it's hard to believe a seven hour given how little amount of time they were going to have for talking, how you get through seven hours is beyond me. And I couldn't get through the whole seven hours myself without transcripts and being able to read. But it's interesting because the uh, this town hall, everyone on the stage, they're going to end up agreeing that we're going to get carbon neutral. But so really, the basic difference is in the details. How are we going to get there? And I think the other bit of this was a little bit different was how upfront they were with the costs. And I think the one who took the kind of the biggest hit on this was Bernie Sanders with his $16 trillion plan. But I'd like to turn it to you to start with, Ken. Who did whose plan has you have you liked the most thus far? And did the climate change town hall change anything for you? I'll probably have to disappoint you a little bit, Trey, on this one, because I I didn't watch the seven hour uh, climate change town hall. So the <laughs> the most that I can speak to is, you know, the I read the I spent 15, 20 minutes reading the New York Times article reporting the, the five big takeaways. So I, I can only speak at that level. Um, my real feeling about, you know, whether it changes anything for me is uh, no, because I, I don't think that the, the different. Um, the differences in policy between the Democratic candidates are anywhere near as large as the differences between all of them and versus the um, Republicans. And uh, and I also think that, you know, at this at this stage out, um, you know, when we don't we don't know who's going to be in Congress, we don't we don't know, you know, a whole lot of variables. We don't know what kinds of uh, aspects of this industry is going to support and what kinds of industry is going to oppose. There's just so many vagaries in the future that I'm, I'm comfortable um, from my perspective, with any of the Democrats, um, and and not really with the Republicans, and so I, I the, the differences between them would not be something that would um, that would really turn me. Uh, I really think actually most of these policy issues, you know, that when these candidates are trying to distinguish themselves on policy right now from each other, um, it, it's it's premature to really think that what they're these differences they're talking about now are really going to actually become their legislative agenda later. Were you happy in general, though, that you kind of get this this halfway? I mean, it's not a debate. Many on the left wanted a debate, a debate specifically, but instead you get the town hall. Were you happy that this at least was a town hall? And what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I do think climate change is, um, if not the most important issue, at least one of the most important issues. And I think it's it's critically important that um, 
we work quickly to reduce carbon emissions. But um, in terms of how to do that, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I would compare it to, you know, back in uh, 2008 when um, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were running against each other in the in the Democratic primary. Um, Hillary Clinton was talking about wanting an individual mandate for health care. And Barack Obama was saying he didn't want an individual mandate for health care. And then, of course, when he got in and that became the Democratic plan and it had the individual mandate, he supported it. So I, I feel like that I do feel like all of the Democratic candidates are taking the issue seriously. And I think that by the end, the, the actual legislative agenda is going to evolve. And, and, you know, so that you can't tell just by what they're saying now. Um, what what side they're going to be on any particular issue, but I I do I am satisfied that they're all taking the issue very seriously. Now, so for me, I'll kind of interject a little bit here, and that is is I fall in an unusual position, which is I am a conservative who takes climate change very seriously. One of the things that I have kind of been disappointed though with on the left is that while they are taking it quote unquote seriously the bulk of their proposals don't appear to me to actually be feasible, nor will they get to the, the, the fundamental issue. For example, all except for one of the Democratic candidates is still saying, well, we, we can't have any nuclear power. We're somehow going to use completely alternative energy, despite the fact there really is no, there are no numbers to suggest that's possible. Or Sanders with his $16 trillion plan. I don't think those are possibilities. So when you were saying as a whole, what do you think are the actual plans here? I was kind of disappointed, to be honest, with the town hall. I'm happy that somebody's taking it seriously per se, but I'm not particularly happy with the plans that they're putting forward, especially the number of them who is agreeing with uh, pretty much a, a PR disaster in the Green New Deal. Um. Well, I, I don't I, I mean, you could look at it from a PR standpoint, I guess. And I'm not sure I'm capable of, of judging that right now. But I from a substantive standpoint, you know, some of them like uh, Beto O'Rourke was talking about cap and trade, um, which is something that does work. So, um, you know, that's something I wouldn't say is is ridiculously uh, infeasible or something. And the, the others who are talking about future technologies, um, I, I don't think that's so crazy. I mean, if, if you only look at what technology we have today and can can wind and solar today meet our energy needs? You know, of course, the answer would be no. But if you look at um, the the pace of improvement in wind and solar and, uh, uh, you know, how much more they can do now than they could have done 10 years ago or 20 years ago, um, and you project that if with the right kinds of investments, it's possible to keep that pace going, um, I, I, I don't see that it is infeasible. Um, you know, I, I think I think people um, can can develop alternative energy sources, and people can also um, conserve energy, and and conservation does have to be part of it. And so, those are kind of the big ideas I'm hearing. When when Sanders talks about a, a 16 billion dollar price tag, trillion. or 16 16 trillion dollar price tag, you know that that may sound like a lot, but um, it's 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 it doesn't really mean that that's where we're going to wind up. I think of that more as a, a bargaining position. Um, and it is over a long period of time. I, I can't remember exactly how long of a period of time it was, but it was, certainly wasn't a single year. Well, I mean, I can understand I'm a technologist on that front, so I understand the idea of wanting to be optimistic. But even if you just posit that alternative fuels will continue to increase at some kind of linear rate, 
you're not meeting any of the candidates deadline to be carbon neutral. And and so, again, this feels more like me saying, yes, I really care about the uh, the environment. Yes, I really care about climate change. But I don't see any of these being anything but kind of a bit ex- extreme, but yet not practical. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it matters, I guess, is what I'm saying. Like I'd say, even if you're right about that, um, to me, that's not a problem because what I want in there is someone who um, will care about the environment and care about climate change. It doesn't really matter whether they have a plan right now that's workable or feasible because it's more a question of values than a question of what their plan is. If they're, if they're in there, then they will be constrained by what's feasible. But if their objectives are the right objectives, then that, that's, that's basically far preferable to me than if you've got someone in there who doesn't care about climate change. Isn't that a little bit close, though, to what uh, sent Republicans, in my opinion, over the cliff? Well, look, you know, we got to have somebody who's going to be voting for the right, nominating the right judges. And so if he's going to put those right things in, eh, other people will fill in the details. I mean, is, isn't that kind of taking maybe not quite to the extreme uh, of the Trump, but isn't that on the same kind of playing field? No, not at all, because um, uh, Congress is going to have a big role to play here. And it's not like one person who's going to be president has to have everything um, worked out for the future uh, by, by fiat now. Um, I, I would again sort of go back to the debates about um, health care, you know, where um, when we were looking at this uh, uh, 11 years ago in the campaign season, there were a lot of differences in details between the plan that um, Clinton was campaigning on and the plan that Obama was campaigning on. And there were a lot of um, Republicans saying that neither of those plans would be feasible or workable. And what what Congress actually did end up enacting um, in the Affordable Care Act was um, a version that combined some aspects of Clinton's plan and some aspects of Obama's plan and was a little less ambitious than either um, and did a great deal of good in terms of terms of uh, improving health care. So I think I think that's how the legislative process plays out, that people come in, you know, fighting for things. But that because Congress really has to legislate all this, um, that's really where the, the reality meets the aspirations and where compromises are worked out and, you know, something will be turned into an actual workable legislative agenda. Well, I guess we're going to take a look at that as that moves forward. I'll say the last thing that was a little bit disappointing for me on the on the meta level was just the fact that I think doing it in this format and kind of relegating it in a larger sense, downplays the idea and the importance of climate change. Other things get debates, and this is going to get, I think, largely skipped by the majority of voters, which is, I think, unfortunate. But here we are. But now, Ken, I'd like to move forward to another topic. And it's one that we've... It's There's something about the international environment that says that when Trey and Ken are going to do the show, something crazy is going to happen in in the United Kingdom. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it just seems to be the case. I don't know why that is. Uh, And this week was no different. This Wednesday, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson suffered some major losses in Parliament, especially considering that in large part, his job depends on his ability to make Brexit happen. So what happened this week? Well, one, he lost his governing majority. The House of Commons passed a bill which would require Johnson to formally ask the EU to extend the deadline to January 
if no deal is agreed by October 9th. And effectively what this would be doing is stopping a no deal Brexit from automatically taking place on October 31. As a matter of fact, the House of Lords has agreed to that just today as well, which sends it now to the monarch, which is is just symbolic. Johnson, though, now because of this, wants there to be kind of snap elections before the deadline, before the 19th. But the Commons has not agreed at this point to want to do it, and it doesn't seem likely that he's going to get the two-thirds support necessary. Of course, behind all of this is the EU, which doesn't necessarily have to accept the extension of to January, which was already difficult to get it to October. So goodness gracious, Ken, what do you think about uh, Brexit? I know we're getting outside of American politics for a minute yeah. here, but there's some interesting things happening in the United Kingdom. Yeah, it's it's been absolutely fascinating this week. Um, I would say that um, there, there, there could have been a serious uh, constitutional crisis. It may have been averted by the enactment of, of the, the, the bill that you just described. But England has a, an unwritten constitution, and um, we, were, we were almost heading into territory where it was really um, uh, unclear. Um, uh, you know, it could have actually been unclear whether Brexit would or wouldn't even happen on October 31st if, if the uh, if, 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 um, if the parliament was not sitting at that time, never took action again until then, and had and had voted um, uh, against this um, No Deal Brexit, um, but had previously voted to trigger Article 50. So one one aspect of this that fascinated me the most, and you, you mentioned it, is um, that uh, Johnson tried to call for a new election, and uh, um, Corbyn, who you would, his opponent, who you would think would be always in favor of that, um, uh, opposed it. So all, all of the all of the other parties opposed it. And I think the reason for that, which can be difficult to see, is that um, if 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 there had been um, a call for a new election, then that gives Johnson the power to dismiss the current parliament. He said he would set the election for October 14th but he or 15th, I guess. But he also has the power later, as we're getting closer to October 15th, to postpone that by a few more weeks. So if, if the if the election call had been accepted by the other parties, it's very possible that Johnson would have scheduled and then delayed an election. And that would have meant that um, uh, Brexit um, would have happened. There would have been a crash out on October 31st because par- Parliament wouldn't have been sitting there to, to prevent that from happening. And simultaneously, you can see some of the fissures in, uh, in in the United Kingdom right now. Constitutionally speaking, as you take a look at the number of elections there have been, and for those who don't follow the United Kingdom closely, once upon a time they had what were max five year terms, meaning you had an election and then you could hold uh, the the at office for up to five years, but in that period government could call and would call for new elections. They then moved to a permanent cycle where they, they theoretically they were going to be sitting for five years, but yet they actually haven't done that because there is a mechanism to undo it and vote again. So there has been a lot of electoral uncertainty in an era when there was an attempt to move it towards more certainty. And and here we're having it again with Johnson trying to have these snap elections. What do you think happens at the end of October, Ken? It's it's really hard to know. I mean, I, the only analogy I can think of in in our history here in the United States is um, that you got to go all the way back to the 1850s when the Whig Party uh, broke up over the issue of slavery. And uh, um, I, I think um, you know the Tories could break up over this. So uh, Johnson kicked out 
21 uh, Tories, including some very prominent members like Winston Churchill's uh, grandson and uh, um, uh, his own brother uh, uh, resigned yesterday, I guess, from, the, from who was also a Tory member of parliament. So you, you, we could see serious realignments. It's an interesting moment because the Tories are mainly uh, in favor of leaving the EU, but a significant minority is in favor of remaining. And Labour is mainly in favor of um, remaining, but there's a significant minority that's in favor of leaving. And uh, um, and 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 Brexit is probably now the most important issue to m most voters. So with the, with the parties not um, being completely coherent. Um, on that issue, it, it seems like there's a lot of possibilities for realignments. Uh, I, I think on the 31st, um, a court will end up ordering Johnson to follow the statute that got passed this week, um, and then and then I think he will. But um, I think without that court order, he probably wouldn't. But now, of course, the in the backdrop of all of this, the EU does not have to allow the deadline to extend. So no matter what happens in the United Kingdom, uh, they could still end up with a no deal Brexit. What do you think is the likelihood yeah. that, the, that the European yeah. Union will say, well, you know what, one more time, we're going to extend this out to January? Sure they will. In fact, I think there's more of a risk that they would extend it by more than three months than that they wouldn't extend it at all, because I think they believe that the Johnson government isn't going to last. Right. So if based on that assumption that, that Johnson, uh, as soon as there's an election, Johnson will not be the prime minister anymore, I think the EU now does see a path to, to give a short extension that will lead to um, there never being a Brexit. Now, I, if, if it wasn't for that, I think they would think harder about whether they wanted to grant a, a, a short extension. But but I, I think they're actually going to be acting under the assumption that a, a short extension is actually a, a, a it's the beginning of the end of Brexit. Unfortunately, though, if you're in the United Kingdom, this just means you're going to have for the foreseeable future, at least continued uncertainty which is probably not a, a phenomenal place to be in a time when we're already seeing some economic and global economic uh, rollbacks and uncertainty never helps that. So yeah, it, it's, it's going to be a, a fraught period. I, I hope that you're right in your analysis on the fact that the Brexit never happens, but I'm, I'm not yet convinced that we have reached the point where we're going to have a, a permanent, not Brexit. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, maybe I, maybe I didn't mean to be that bold in my prediction either. All I was trying to say is that that's how I think the EU will look at it now. And that's why I think they will grant the extension. But um, I don't know what's going to happen in the election. Um, you know, I, I think I think there's I think that Europe will look at this and, and say there's no way Johnson's hanging on. But I, I think to me, that's more unpredictable. I, I don't know what will happen in this election. It could be that Nigel Farage's Brexit party picks up the seats that uh, that that the Tories lose. And so there could still be a, a coalition for for leaving. So I yeah, I really don't know what will happen after that. Um, but I do think there will be an election after that. And I think there's at least some chance that um, the election will clarify things in some ways. But it could happen, uh, of course, also that the um, election still leads to uh, unstable coalition government like they have right now. Well, and just real quick, did, was there any conversation or talk while you were in Germany about Brexit? Is, is it the way it's covered in Europe different than it is here? Uh, or was that just not anything that happened with you? I was curious about yeah. that. No, I, I did talk to Germans about it. Now, I, I was at a little bit of a disadvantage because I, I don't read German, so I couldn't read the German uh, newspapers. Okay, gotcha. But I, but I, but I spoke to um, I spoke to Germans who spoke English with me, and uh, um, and so I, uh, yeah, the the impression that I got was that they they really thought Brexit was going to happen. I, I I think things are you know I'm I'm projecting a little bit 
that because of the events of this week, it will start to look less likely to Europe that it'll happen. But while I was there, I think they all thought, well, Johnson's coming in, Brexit's happening. And, um, you know, I think there was some concern for the Republic of Ireland that I heard in Germany because the Germans thought that the Republic of Ireland would be very much harmed by it. But I think in Germany, people thought that um, England would also be harmed by it and that Germany would hardly be harmed by it so that, you know, England would, would you know, they'd, be, they'd suffer for, for, um, for, for, for their own foolishness, basically. That was primarily the attitude that I was hearing in, in Germany. I was I had wondered about that since that's where you'd been. Well, why don't we bring this back across the pond to the United States again and talk about a really important court case. And it's it's weird to me because everything we've been talking about Wednesday was the day. So we're going to just keep on track with that. This Wednesday, a federal court judge ruled that the government database that compiles people to be, quote, known or suspected terrorists, end quote violates the rights of American citizens, and the court called into question the constitutionality of these lists used by the FBI and Homeland Security. The facts in this case are were primarily undisputed, which means that there can be a summary judgment. In this case, uh, uh, Judge Tringa ruled in favor of the plaintiffs. Uh, and what was found, and the ma- major government was, one, that the plaintiffs had the right to move forward, which was the government's primary defense. They argued that there wasn't a real harm taking place. It wasn't stopping them. It was only maybe a little bit delaying them. And so the court, though, definitely disagreed and ruled, quote, that it fails to provide a constitutionally sufficient procedural due process, end quote, for what's necessary if you're going to be taking away somebody's liberty. And that's a big deal in this case because the court ruled that it has a number of liberty interests at stake. And therefore, the reason for uh, looking at this is relatively high. Now, Ken, I know this is your wheelhouse. Uh, Were you surprised by this ruling? And what does this mean moving forward for the FBI and and for Homeland Security? Well, I'll say I wasn't surprised by the ruling because, as you as you correctly and carefully noted, um, this was mainly only a procedural ruling that allows this case to proceed. It wasn't um, so ne- neither side won or lost the case. It's just that the, the the government wanted the case thrown out and it didn't get thrown out. So so that's a loss for the government, but it doesn't mean they have to yet change the way they do business. It just means they're going to have to go to court and and defend it. Um, and and I, I think these are serious issues. The the Some of the criteria that the government now uses um, to decide whether to put somebody on these watch lists, you know, like what their religion is, what language they speak, whether, whether they've taken lessons to learn a particular language, um, you know, these are constitutionally protected activities. And they're also not really all that predictive of who's going to commit terrorism. So it seems very dicey um, for the government to use uh, fairly non-predictive reasons that that may reflect certain kinds of biases um, and that infringe on on constitutionally protected rights. So it didn't surprise me that the case is going to be allowed to go forward. I I was pleasantly surprised maybe that this 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 judge was a a judge appointed by uh, President George W. Bush. um, And, and, you know, I might have I might have had a bias and thought, well, he, he, if you know that the Bush judges might not do the right thing in a case like this, but this judge, you know, certainly did do the right thing. So that I, I, I shouldn't be surprised at that. And you're right. I mean, this is the first in the procedural move. What do you think will be? What do you think will happen in the actual case itself when uh, the court has to begin to rule on the issues at hand? 
Oh, I, I think the I don't think that'll get to that point because I think what'll happen is um, the judge will be signaling, um, you know, to the government about certain things they could do to make the case go away. And I think that'll end up happening. I think once once the government um, realizes that they're not going to get this thing thrown out, and I think that's what they realize now, um, I think they'll come back in with um, offering certain kinds of changes, probably more in the nature of procedural protections so that, um, you know, they'll, they'll probably have to agree that they're not going to um, put people on the list solely based on things like whether they took Arabic lessons. And they're probably also going to have to agree that um, they, um, if, if someone's name is on the list, that there's some kind of um, uh, efficient process that someone can use if they want to come in and, and try to get their name off the list. And I, I think the government will end up agreeing to make those changes and, and that so that the court, the, the court will never really have to rule against the government. The reason I wondered about that, Ken, was that one of the both controversial and, according to the government, useful features of the watch list is the fact that you can't actually even know if you're on it. That was one of the uh, one of the facts of the case that were undisputed. What do you think the likelihood, though, is, is that government's going to make the list public? And in some way, it would have to at least be quasi-public if you're going to have any kind of safeguard to say, I want to get my name off it. The uh, the plaintiffs in this case are not even sure they're on it. They're simply inferring based on the behavior towards them. So do you think government really is going to go so far as to say, yeah, we're going to make this in some way public or knowable at a minimum to the individuals who are on it? I think they may have to. Um, yeah, I think uh, I, I, not public, certainly. But um, yeah, I, I think that they're, if they won't if they won't agree to let individuals who are on it have a way to get off of it. Now, may, maybe they don't need to contact people right when they put them on it. But I think individuals are going to figure out whether they're on it if they have difficulty getting on an airplane. Right. And so if you have someone who has difficulty getting on an airplane and then and then applies uh, to the to the Department of Homeland Security afterwards and says, I've had difficulty getting on an airplane. I must be on some kind of list and I want to have a procedure to get off that list. Um, yeah, I, I think I think that is something that the if the DHS doesn't agree to have a procedure like that, they're, they're going to run a serious risk of losing this case. And, and of course, moving it forward as a result. Well, you know, and this is this is, I think, a really central issue moving forward. The ability to have liberty is difficult when one is you can't even know whether you are being discriminated against effectively on the basis of criteria, some of which are at best maybe predictive. Or, and you were saying I don't think are, are predictive in a general sense. Well, let's move on to one uh, one more story here for the main show, and that is is there's been some fracas this week among Republicans because a number of state Republican parties are scrapping their primaries and caucuses. Already this week, four states are either have canceled or on the brink of canceling their 2020 GOP presidential primaries and caucuses. If any of the challengers that Mike and I were talking about last week even had a hope, and by the way, they don't, this would have effectively ended it. This gives Trump the oxygen potentially to simply move on to the major round and think about whoever the Democratic nominee will be. As you might expect, anti-Trump forces and the presidential nominees themselves, including Representative Joe Walsh that we talked about last week, think, quote, it's wrong. The RNC should be ashamed of itself, end quote. 
the states are arguing it saves money. And these moves are not necessarily unique or only Trumpian in that sense. It happened with Barack Obama in 2012, Bill Clinton in 1996, and more relevantly, maybe in this case, to George H.W. Bush in 1992 when he was facing Pat Buchanan, in which even Iowa opted out. What do you think about the scrapping of the primary. I mean, is this something that you're happy about, Ken? Something you think is a bad idea? What, what What's your take on it? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's the Republicans, and and my my first sort of take on this is the Republicans can do what the Republicans want, and I'm I'm not a Republican, so I, I don't I don't think I I don't want to um I I really think it's their own business. Um, so if if the question is more like, would I want the Democrats to do that if we had an incumbent Democratic president? Um, I don't think it's a great idea. Um, I, I think the main thing that it does is it it, um, it it makes it makes the system seem rigged, and and really it's it's totally unnecessary because as you pointed out, it it, it isn't the case that a, a sitting incumbent president is at any real risk of losing the primary in even one single state. So, and and also I don't think this will affect. I mean, Trump could decide whether he's going to debate these other candidates or not, but his and but his decision about that isn't going to be influenced by whether only 46 states are having primaries or whether all 50 states are having primaries, right? So, I mean, to the extent that he wants to just pretend that nobody else is running, he could do that uh, even if formally they could run. So I, I, I don't think it can affect anything really. And, and I think it just, um, it, it, gets, it gets certain, you know, to the extent that any of the other candidates have any constituencies, um, you know, it, it'll, it, it'll probably cement their views that, uh, that, that the, the, not only do they not like Trump, but that, um, the whole Republican Party uh, has, uh, you know, s- some some legitimacy problems, I guess. So I don't I don't think it's wise, but I think it's it's really, really up to them. It is u- a unique modern feature, though, that we see kind of becoming more normalized. And that is that presidents don't end up having to even seek nomination in many of their in many of their states, as, as I just mentioned, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush. I think for me, what's kind of unfortunate about that is more about the perception of it, which is this idea that, well, you've already won, so why should you even have the opportunity to challenge? And so I think sometimes, especially in the American political scene, we have the idea that efficiency is the best outcome. Uh, And we don't like Congress because they debate too much. We don't like uh, having to argue and compromise because things don't get done. We don't like the fact that we can't instantaneously make legal shifts. And I see a lot of these kinds of moves, not so much as in individual terms, but rather as just being a larger rejection of the idea of the constitutional republic system, which we have, which is to say, Things aren't supposed to be quick or easy or even always, quote unquote, necessary, but they're there as a safeguard. Uh, So and you were kind of hinting on that, too, Ken. What do you think about these kinds of moves becoming more common? Yeah, you know, I also have mixed feelings about that because it doesn't actually bother me that the political parties play an active role in deciding who their own candidates are going to be. Um, you know, I know in 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 modern times, the general trend, and maybe this is slightly going against the general trend what we're talking about now, but the the general trend has been to democratize the parties more and more, and to give all the registered voters in the in the in the parties more of a say, rather than giving the people who um, run the parties all the say. 
But I, I, I actually do prefer a bit of a balance. So in that sense, I'm not personally offended by a move like this. I think it may be unwise, but because of the way it will be perceived, as we talked about. But, um, you know, the Democrats uh, also made some changes. Um, uh, the, the Democrats had a much uh, more um, the, the superdelegates in, in 2016, which the Republicans didn't have. And the concept of superdelegates maybe in some ways um, also was to um, – reduce the the amount that the the the, the party membership um, controls the outcomes and to make sure that the the party leaders have a disproportionate say in the outcomes and people got disgruntled about that in uh, 2016 and the so the DNC made changes where um, now the superdelegates although they still have them they they can't cast votes um, until the convention. So, you know, in 2016, when um, a superdelegate would pledge who they're going to vote for, that would start to go into the counts of how many delegates the candidates had. So that if you were keeping track of, you know, how many votes does Clinton have, how many votes does Sanders have, it would include both the votes they were getting from primaries and caucuses and the votes that they were getting from superdelegates. And so there was a thought, thought that that made it seem more like Clinton was winning by more than she was the whole time. And, and so some people were disgruntled by that and uh, they changed it. I'm not even sure that's a wise change, though. I mean, I, I, even though that might be a more democratizing change, um, I, I actually kind of like the balance where party members and party leaders each play a role in this rather than party members playing the only role and, and party leaders playing um, no substantive role. I'm, I'm not sure I do like that. So that's why I say if the Republican Party leaders think this is right for them, you know, I, I respect that. I, I think that um, the party leaders should have a role in, in influencing who the candidates are. Well, just quickly and briefly, Ken, because I know that everybody else who, who does the show has had a chance to, to make this a little more public. But is the Republicans here are now obviously looking forward to the general election till 2020. On the Democratic side, we still have the primary, so there's a lot to, to come down. What about for you and, and our kind of closing bit here? Who would you most like to see be the Democratic nominee to take on Trump in 2020? Yeah, you know, we talked about that before, and I ducked it, and I'm going to duck it again because um, <laughs> the 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 thing for me that's the most important is that the candidates um, stay uh, united um, in in an effort to defeat Donald Trump. And I I really don't I, I like all the I, I'll say I'll say one I don't I don't like Tulsi Gabbard, but I like all the I like all the other candidates, and uh, and I don't think Tulsi Gabbard's going to be the nominee, and. There may be very big differences between Joe Biden and, and Bernie Sanders, but I'd be completely happy to vote for either one of them against Donald Trump. And so I feel like right now there's much more danger in um, divisiveness within the Democrats that I would not personally want to foster um, than I think there is at stake in trying to um, kind of commit to one candidate. I, I don't want to get that cognitive dissonance where like I decide, well, this is my candidate and then I get disappointed if it's a different candidate. Like, I, I don't think that would be helpful to me. And I actually w wish that more Democrats would look at it that way. Well, I, I'm always curious to hear what you have to say, Ken. Now, as soon as Ken and I here are done recording the show, though, we're going to be doing our special supporters exclusive show next. And this week we're going to be talking about Two stories, one that happened this week, one that happened a while ago, but I think the one that most of you might be most interested in, we're going to talk about electors. And can electors vote for anybody they want to? And there's actually been a recent court case. And so Ken and I are going to be taking on the issue of the Electoral College and electors' ability to vote. Ken, it's been a lot of fun doing the show with you. 
I can't believe it's over already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, believe. No. <laughs> now, if you're a supporter, though, and you want to catch Ken and I one more time, you're not done with us yet, then by the time the show is over, uh, you're going to be able to download it. And that's just one of our supporter-only bonuses we've got for you. So if you want to become a supporter, if you want to find out more about becoming a supporter, I encourage you to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can actually head to politicsguys.com slash support. If you've got a question, comment, reaction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com our Facebook page where we have lots of interesting conversations and put out questions for the show uh, and post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politics guys page, facebook.com slash politics guys page. We're also on Twitter at politics guys. Subscribing to the show really helps us out. And so does sharing episodes. It's the word of mouth. That's the best advertising we can have. And we deeply appreciate it. Leaving reviews on Apple, on Spotify, anywhere you're listening to your podcast. It really, really helps. Thank you so much. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Moreno, Andra Masker, ben, and Benji Fish- Fishman. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us then.